everyone, and welcome to the Get In The Game podcast. Today, we're joined by trial lawyer extraordinaire Victor George from the Los Angeles area. Victor's a proprietor of the sole proprietor of the Victor L. George Law Office, specializing in catastrophic injuries, employment, discrimination, and other cases that go to trial. Victor graduated from the Pepperdine University School of Law in Malibu, where he obtained his Juris Doctorate. Prior to that, he went to the University of West Virginia in his home state of West Virginia. We're glad to have you here, Vic. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian. Always a pleasure. Let, let's talk about your life. You, you grew up in West Virginia. What was that like and what bearing did that have on your desire to become a trial lawyer? Well, West Virginia was a terrific place to grow up. It's a lot of kind people. It's a beautiful area. I think what impacted me growing up is the struggle of coal miners in the state. That was the main industry in the in the state. It was an exceptionally uh, hard job for those workers and they went underground. They got a lot of diseases like black lung and white lung. And as time went on, I just always thought if there's some way I could maybe help people that needed a hand, it'd be a wonderful job to have. And that's how I kind of gravitated toward uh, trial work. Was anyone in your family in the, in the law field? No, no one was. When was it that you first thought, man, I'd like to be a lawyer? Well, I think when I was in college, primarily, I thought that it would be a fantastic job. When I was a kid, we read the book, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I always thought that was exciting and seemed like interesting work. And so probably college is when I started thinking about law school and what law school to try to go to, et cetera. Well, you certainly, in choosing your law school, made a drastic change from the Blue Ridge Mounds of West Virginia <laughs> to the blue sea of Malibu. What was it that brought you out here to California and particularly to Malibu? Maybe just a visit to the campus might have been all it took. Well, a good buddy of mine and I, after our junior year of college, we drove across America picking up odd jobs. And one of the places we came down to was Malibu. At the time, they had this thing called the Battle of the Network Stars in Pepperdine. So we drove up and looked around, and I just thought, if there's any way I could end up coming to school here, it's a, a spectacular uh, vantage point from Malibu. So I, it sounds shallow, but I ended up here because it was so beautiful and it was a great three years at, uh, in Malibu. What was it about law school, if anything, that continued to give you that thirst of the courtroom and to be a, a trial lawyer? Well, in law school, the opportunity to do trial advocacy classes, mock trial, moot court, I just really fell in love with cross-examination. And I thought, again, it was an opportunity to really impact the community and help people. And I always thought the jury system was so fascinating and exciting. I'm a very competitive person, and I think that trial work is, is so competitive. Someone is going to win. It's one of the few fields where someone uh, wins. There's no ties. So There's always a winner and there's always a loser. That's correct. So you're in law school now. Are you, are you worried? Like, where are you going to work? Where's your career path going to be? How did that come about for you? Well, I had an opportunity to do an internship with a judge named John Merrick, who was in the Malibu branch of the Los Angeles Superior Court. He was a great guy. I got to watch trials, and I really enjoyed them. So then I had an opportunity to actually go to work with a number of my friends from Pepperdine. We took a job uh, at a law firm named Houston Stein and & Hanger, and it just from there started doing the work and worked in the defense for a few years and then eventually found my way to plaintiff's work. So you started out working for an insurance defense firm. That's correct. At the time was a very well-known 
insurance defense forum, had some top lawyers. Were you working there before you got out of law school? Yeah, we did um, clerkship there. And just as an aside, I may mention that uh, one of the cases we had was against a very excellent attorney named Howard Panish, who uh, oh. you know very well, Brian. <laughs> that would be my father. Yes. But anyway, let's talk about the experiences you gained working for an insurance defense firm. Some people might say, why would you do that, considering what you're into now? But what was it about it? How did it help your career? Well, I think it helps the career for one thing. When you go to work for an insurance defense firm, the amount of depositions that you take is unprecedented. So you're continually preparing for trial. Now, when we were young attorneys, it was the, the bosses, the partners that were doing the trials. But the prep work, I think, is essential. None of us really just uh, start, leave law school and become good trial attorneys. It takes that foundation. So I think the fact that I had hundreds and hundreds of depositions and preparing for trial um, really helped me when I moved over to the plaintiff side. You know, when I used to think I knew some about cross-examination, I would be kind of bragging to my father, and he'd say to me, you know, when you've taken a thousand depositions, then maybe you know a little <laughs> bit about cross-examination. Do you find that to be true? You think you got it right away, but it, it kind of takes some time and practice to get good at it? Well, I've often said that uh, to this day, many of my very best questions for cross-ex are as I'm driving home from the courthouse. So uh, hopefully I'm always improving that your dad is exactly right. Those thousand or so depots really help make you a better cross-examiner. So you're at the defense firm where you have friends working there. What was it about that that made you want to yearn to get your own firm or to become a plaintiff attorney? What happened was I was started on some jury trials for the defense and it was for insurance companies primarily or, or corporate entities. And at the end of the trial, the award would be zero. It'd be a defense verdict. And for me personally, and not to be you know offensive at all to defense attorneys, there was an emptiness. I didn't ever feel the amazing feeling that I feel now when I'm able to win for a victim as compared to helping an insurance company uh, reduce what maybe their, uh, the, the amount they should pay would be. So I just had a longing to do something. I grew up in a home that was a you know, very liberal, democratic home. My, <coughs> my mom was a delegate to seven different democratic national conventions. So we always pulled forward the workers. And so that's, I think that's how I found my way to plaintiff's law. And eventually did you have your own firm? Yes, yeah, in fact, when I left the defense firm, I immediately started my own plaintiff's firm. And what, what were your feelings like? I mean, were you worried, hey, is anyone gonna call me? Am I going to be a success? Were you worried about it? What were your thoughts? I think anyone that says they don't have that anxiety is probably uh, not being totally honest. Uh, you know, when the, you get that paycheck every two weeks and your bonus at the end of the year, there's a comfort to that. But I just knew I wanted to be on my own. I really wanted to be my own boss. And I thought I would love working as hard as I was working, even more when I was working uh, for myself and for my plaintiffs. So, yeah, there was anxiety nervousness, but luckily it worked out fantastic and I, I can't be more thankful. What would you say to a, a less experienced lawyer or any lawyer that's thinking about going up, open their own firm, and they have all these worries, what would your advice to them be? Well, I think they do themselves a huge favor by uh, talking to everyone in their network, anyone. Uh, they don't have to do anything with law, but the fact that uh, they could uh, have those people maybe feed them cases, think about them, be aware of them, spread the word about them, 
And most importantly, I advise any attorneys whenever I give speeches, you have to try some cases. Win, lose, or draw. If you can try the case, then I think you get recognized as someone that'll do it. You'll get better at it, and I think it increases your case value. So you get your own firm. Well, do you remember the first case you tried on your own? I swear. It was uh, over at the 4th Street Pharmacy in Santa Monica. A really nice little elderly lady named Mary Litbeck had tripped over one of the parking stops in the parking lot and um, tried the case and it came in at $15,000 and I thought I was, I couldn't believe I got that whole $6,000 and uh, it was a long time ago, but I do remember that and she was a wonderful person that deserved it and of course the insurance company didn't make any offer, they said you gotta look where you're going and so it was, uh, I do, I won't ever forget that. Okay, so you started your, your firm, you're trying cases. What's the first big case you want? Well, I guess big can be vague. Big to you. Yeah, well, I had a, a case when that there was first an AIDS epidemic, and uh, I had a, a plaintiff named Bruce Hope. He worked in the California penal system as a, as a cook in the prisons, and he, had, he was HIV positive, and they got nervous about that when it was diagnosed, and so they simply fired him. And so tried that case. It was when the, you know, HIV people still weren't com obviously comfortable with, and the people that, and the employers didn't know quite how to handle it. I was obviously doing a lot of personal injury cases. This was kind of a segue into discrimination law um, for sexual preference orientation and physical disability. And the verdict came in. There was no. I think the state. I think the state of California offered a hundred thousand. So you were suing the state that yeah. runs the correctional facilities. That's correct. The Department yeah. of Prisons. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so you're suing the case. So let's see. You go in the trial now, and this is when the, the HIV epidemic was in its infancy, or people had not all adjusted. Maybe some haven't still, but it was in the early days of gender or. or uh, sexual preference, sexual preference discrimination. Yes. What, what was that like? Were you worried that jurors were going to be not wanting to award money to someone that had HIV for because of his lifestyle, maybe because he wasn't going to live long? What did you think about that? How well, did you deal with that? I was exceptionally worried about how jurors would perceive the fact that he was gay and the fact that he had got this disease that was so famous and so terrible. And so we spent a lot of time in jury selection on specifically addressing the comfort of the jurors with someone that had an openly gay lifestyle, was clearly gay when you met him. And actually, uh, the judge allowed a number of four-cause um, challenges because a lot of people on the jury were honest enough to say that biblically, that they believed that the Bible was against homosexuality. So these jurors did not feel comfortable sitting in judgment of a gay person. So I was able to get them off the jury and the jury that we had was fantastic and they came back at $2 million and he only made $22,000 a year. So it was a remarkable result back then and I think really maybe opened some doors for hopefully for less employers to be more discriminatory toward gays. And is that how you kind of got into part of your practice which covers the employment arena? I guess indeed. Now. Looking back at that case for the cook, as a plaintiff lawyer, you go first. You have some issues usually in a case that goes to trial. You're now going to start the jury selection. How do you 
address those issues with the jury? Do you write out the questions? Do you have certain areas? How do you go about doing it? Well, I, I never stand behind a podium. I never look at notes during five year. I try to establish full eye contact. I always memorize all of the six pack, the 18 jurors' names, their last names, to speak with them with respect. Let me just uh, interrupt Please. you. And in California, it's a little different from our listeners oh, of states, but there are 12 jurors, and when you're picking them, you put six in the front. They call that a California six pack or 18 jurors. And that's just one of the ways in California they do it many other ways, but go ahead. So what I always try to do in uh, jury selection, for me, jury selection is really jury deselection. So I'm always just talking about all of my bad facts and the things I always, when I give speeches, I say, I try to inoculate the poison of the rattlesnake. So I was very open with that jury right away. You have a situation with a disease that a lot of us are unfamiliar with, a lot of us are scared of, you know, Magic Johnson had retired from the Lakers based on just HIV, not on AIDS. And then the fact that it was a gay lifestyle, you know, 20 years before there was ever a Supreme Court decision that gay marriage was okay. So I took all that on up front. And unfortunately, my jurors were honest about, you know, a lot of their, what do we call it, discrimination, but of their prejudice, which was just an innate bias against that lifestyle. So the jury worked out wonderfully. Okay. So then did you start to do more employment related matters? Yes. After that, you know, obviously it got a lot of coverage and it was kind of a new tort, employment law, wrongful termination, discrimination. Um, so it wasn't something that many plaintiff's attorneys were doing. So it opened an, a new door and now it's a very popular and very necessary tort that is often litigated, um, made the workplace, I think, so much better than, you know, obviously back in the days of, for instance, Anita Hill, when, you know, these things like sex harassment first came up. Um, obviously, with the Me Too movement, just in these past two years, things have changed dramatically. For lawyers that might uh, not know, in California, obviously, the law is fairly favorable in an employment case. Obviously, you have to prove some kind of retaliation, whether it be for race, gender, sex, uh, sexual preference, etc., or a whistleblower type person. They can then recover tort damages and possibly punitive damages. What would you advise somebody that's interested in employment law, doesn't know where they should stick their foot in the deep end, what would you tell them? Well, I think you have to be careful with employment law. It's much more complicated and complex, obviously, than personal injury. You're always going to face a motion for summary judgment because you have to carry the burden of proof that whatever the cause was for the termination did not have a, quote, legitimate business purpose, end of quotes. And employers are smart. They're usually well-counseled by in-house and out-house counsel. And when that you have those um, people advising you, then normally the file is well documented. And so you're always facing an uphill fight against the very best law firms. So I think you just want to be aware of the, the challenges that come with it. But if you can get past that summary judgment, then there's a lot of value to your case because jurors understand that the, the place of employment is so important to people and where they spend most of their waking hours. And most people generally don't like their employer, do they? Well, I think particularly, you know, you're talking about corporate entities and things that we sue. I think they realize the corporation tends to strive for profits, where the employee tends to strive to make a living to feed their family. So I think you think we always have um, a little bit ahead in the race in an employment discrimination trial. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, wrongful death, personal injury. I know what your favorite case is. So why don't you tell us a little, a little bit about that case and 
what you what that was about and the hurdles that you faced in that case well I mean, certainly it was a, a tragic terrible case but it was a great result for the yeah. clients who were there with you throughout this battle tell us set the stage for okay. us. Um, there was a young man um, he was 16 years old and he had gone uh, on a sweet 16 birthday party and the family not his family he was just a party goer had hired a a tour bus company in Los Angeles called Starline Tours. They had a double-decker bus. So 30 children, about 16 years old, got on the bus, and it was to go up to Hollywood and see the Hollywood sign and Man's Chinese Theaters in those places. And as they um, took that trip, the mother had got off at um, in Hollywood and bought alcohol and provided it to the children who were all underage. The kids were drinking the alcohol, and eventually, as time got a little bit tight to get back and start at 4, 4 p.m., was concluded at 8 p.m. Then um, the bus, instead of taking the normal route home, which was surface streets, got on the freeway. And tragically, as the bus was going down the freeway, all of the children were up on the top level, and they were up and dancing and singing and partying. And uh, very sadly, my client's son was uh, is the very, very top of his head impacted a freeway uh, overpass as it came down and he only lived about two days later long enough so they could harvest all of his organs to donate and then he passed away. So when you met with the family I assume there was some anger? Yeah, there was, you know, um, I, I have five kids, Brown you have three kids, I just it's unfathomable I think particularly someone's just going to kind of a, a birthday party in the middle of the day at four o'clock and you get a call that something terrible happened. So they were heartbroken, angry. Um, we didn't know until six months later when the CHP report came out that the mother had provided alcohol to the children. But the target in the case was always the, the Starline Church. So, tell, so you go, you file the case, and so you have a family that's running the party, and then you have the tour bus company that has a driver, they supply the bus. I know there was a claim as to where your client was able actually to stand, maybe that would have been proper and things like that. So you filed the case. Did they say, oh, we're sorry, let's sit down, let's try to work it out? No, they didn't take that posture. The posture was that based on the children, based on the children being um, underage and drinking alcohol and being above the legal limit, which when you're 16, there is no legal limit. But for all those reasons, they of course turned the case against the victim and in fact when we first sued we just sued the bus company we did not know about the mom giving the boost she became a defendant later uh, once the police report came out and that was shocking to everybody so i assume one one of the defenses of the charter bus company was blaming the mother for giving the alcohol not supervising the kids and i assume another defense was your client standing up on the bus and you know, putting himself in harm's way. And being legally drunk. Um, and legally uh, drunk at the age of 15. Uh, 16. 16, but he didn't bring the alcohol. No. It was supplied to him by adults at the location. Now, what about the tour bus company? Were there issues relating to the corporate structure to get to where the money was? There, I, I understand you had some legal issues you had to get by and do a little... Uh, mini trial on the issue of the alter ego, is that right? Yes, there were um, huge issues in the fact that there were five different insurance companies involved, so five different sets of attorneys for um, the bus company, 
and they had a lot of different names. And so we had to what's called pierce the corporate veil to somehow make sure that I got, I don't get too technical, but to have a verdict form where that really all the jury need to know is the liability of just a huge entity called Starline. And so we did a miniature trial with just the judge for six days in which we did the alter ego and put on all of the members of the corporate hierarchy of Starline. And the judge issued a 37 page ruling indicating that indeed all the Starline entities were all one and the same. And so they only could have one voice at trial. And then the verdict form, it would just be, was it the mom or was it the, the young man that was killed or was it the uh, Starline? So once you won the first six day trial, did they come up and say, okay, Vic, we're sorry, we want to pay? Well, they, um, at mediation, I think they offered $3 million, And after they lost the, um, after they lost the alter ego, they offered $4 million. And, and my family were very impressive and strong. And their, their position was this we're not going to put a monetary value on our child. We're going to take this all the way. Um, and we just want the jury to tell us because they would just, I think, feel too guilty to say our child's life is worth this much money. So, so you was, knew you were going to verdict in this case, one way or the other. Yes. And I, I had always had shared that with um, defense counsel. As each week went by, we were doing remarkably well at trial. The jury, I think, was totally into the case and for us. And as the offers kept increasing and increasing, by the millions each week, then, uh, you know, I would always share, of course, ethically with my clients and they would always say, thank, no. thank them, but no, thank you. Okay. How long did the trial last? Uh, six weeks. And what were the key issues in the case? Well, the issues were really what was going to be the apportionment uh, against the bus company versus <clears throat> the mother. And of course the comparative negligence of the 16 year old. So, we were always very aware of you know, doing everything we can to make sure that most of the liability rested on the bus company. The rest of the liability rested on um, the, the mom. And was that a thin line you had to walk there because maybe there wasn't as much available coverage from the parents as there was from the Starline entities? It was a very thin line, but uh, fortunately, the mother's family, the uh, husband was an attorney, they had a very successful law firm, and so they too had a lot of money. But the insurance coverage, the massive amount, was with Starline. Okay. What happened? Um, well, we, after about five weeks, uh, they kept increasing the value of the offer, and eventually they got to kind of a drop deadline in the sand for $12 million for the death of the son. And uh, we respectfully declined. And closing, <laughs> uh, uh, closing arguments, the jury came back in two days, and it was unanimous, and they found um, everything against uh, the Starline as well as the mom. And so the apportionment result ended up being 75% uh, against Starline Turbus, 20% against the mom, and 5% against the 16-year-old. And the verdict was determined to be $26 million. That was for loss of love. That was the only thing we could seek. There were no economic damages, no medicals or anything. So they broke it down as $10 million for the first three years up until the day of the verdict. And then $16 million extra dollars for the rest of their lives to not have the love of their son. And you had some arrangement whereby you, you ended up getting the clients the full amount of money. 
it, um, everything worked out wonderfully for the clients and they did not have to work through the lengthy appellate process or all the challenges of the alter ego and those things. And how to make the clients feel when the jury said so a resounding message as to the value of, of, not really the value, but the loss of the relationship and how great their relationship was. You know, Brian, it's a double-edged sword. I know you've been to this with your cases. There's no amount of money that would ever allow a person, a parent, to feel like somehow um, it is inequitable because of the loss of that child is never going to go away. But my clients were so appreciative and respectful of the jury system. They so loved that jury. We had actually a wonderful party that my clients put on for the jurors and all the jurors came and wow. they just couldn't have thanked them enough for understanding and believing and showing them how special they thought their young son was. And that the, your clients then had confidence that the civil justice system does work and the jury does do the right thing most of the time. You know, one of the great things about uh, that mom and dad is they always trusted the system. They always said, we're not gonna settle. We'll go through mediation, we'll go through the trial. We're not going to settle. We're gonna believe in the jury. The jury will tell us and whatever they say, we'll accept. So it was wonderful. Well, we're running out of time, Vicki. I have so many great cases to talk to and talk about. My pleasure to have you. We've got to get you back soon. And thank you so much for spending some time with us here in your busy schedule. Thank you very much for having me. It's always great to see you, Brian. Thank you. Take care, Mike.